Welcome to another episode of Lost in Science, and it is all the science that you've ever wanted here in your listening ears. And joining me, well, the three of us, Claire, Stu, are with me, Chris, here today on the radio device. Uh, Claire and Stu, how are you? Pretty good. I'm well, thanks. Amazing. I love that, I love that enthusiasm. Um, and I'm sure <laughs> you have some spectacular science, Claire. Well, um, today I am bringing a story that is close to my own heart. In fact, close to my closer to my chest. Um, in that, <laughs> in that, I am talking mammary glands. Uh, yes, I had a baby last year, and um, I've been doing a lot of feeding, breastfeeding. Uh, for the last six months and she's just started on solid so I to sort of mark the occasion I wanted to deep dive into mammary glands across the whole wonderful spectrum of mammals Um, who's got them who doesn't what they make how they make it on all the rest of it as an homage to you know the gland that gives life one of the glands that give life I mean it's it's, it is a life-giving gland. It is. They are, yes. Um, they are. And so, so you're saying that now that the baby is ready to, is kind of starting to move on, you're finally ready to talk about it. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I've yeah. been pretty busy leading up to this. Oh, yeah, so fair enough, I'm fair finally enough. ready to think about it rather than just, you know, be in it. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, well, look, that sounds like a very, I mean, timely for some people, I guess. Uh, but it is a very, like you said, a very important um, and something to dwell on, this, this life-giving glands. Stu, um, what kind of life-giving qualities are you bringing to the table? Well, you know, we, we do like to get lost in science on this show. It is the very name of our show. But one thing we don't want to get lost in is pseudoscience. And I was talking last week uh, a bit about um, conspiracy theories and, you know, successful interventions in, in preventing people from falling into conspiracy theories. And, and one of the successful uh, methods that has been shown by research is to sort of inoculate people against pseudoscience. So pseudoscience is, you know, it's out there all over the place. People kind of pretending that they've got scientific evidence of something which is not actually backed up by science and hasn't gone through the scientific process of investigation that we that we sort of rely on for, for genuinely useful factual information. So I'm going to talk a little bit this week about what pseudoscience is and maybe some things to look out for if you're not sure about if something is being uh, sort of thrown at you and presented as something real. How can you figure out if it's actually a load of old crap? All right. Well, it sounds like some amazing infotainment for your brain holes. Let's get on with the show.
as you both know and our listeners know, I had a baby in September last year and, you know, it was an incredibly monumental happening in my life. Uh, And since then, in the last six months, I've spent a lot of time feeding my little baby, like a lot. And like all other mammals out there, I feed my baby with milk. And in this case, it's breast milk that she drinks from my mammary glands. Um, And you know what? With doing all this breastfeeding, feeding my tiny little helpless mammal milk, it really has just got me thinking fondly that we're all just part of a mammalian flock with the rest of the placental mammals out there, you know. So it brings you back to brings you back to nature. Is that what you're it, saying? It here? brings it brings you back to nature and and um, not just the placental mammals, all no, the other no. mammals as well, because you know the marsupials, the monotremes, because they drink milk as well, and all of those animals that also feed their young milk. So today we're going to go deep on mammary glands, <laughs> who's got them, how they use them, and uh, what the milk is like. So. Let's start way back when. Mammary glands came onto the scene about 200 million years ago. So, you know, they're not that new. That's that's a long time. That's like... It is a long time. That's a lot of mammary glands. So is that pre-dinosaurs or is that um, around the the start of the dinosaurs, really? Is Mm. it 200 million years ago? That's a long time ago. It is a long time. It is a long time. So were were the mammary glands around before animals that we would consider mammals did they come first and then the mammals evolved with them that is a very good question i was under the impression that they came with the mammals so anything that has a mammary gland is a mammal really though we are talking about the long-term memories here (laughs) talking about the long-term memories absolutely and you know um mammary glands unite mammals across the board from moles, dogs, koalas, tigers, platypuses. We're all united under um, the long-term mammary gland. Um, There's about 6,000 species that all start life on a diet of milk, but how they lactate um, and how they produce this milk and how they feed it to their young is very different across the mammal world. Uh, So one thing they all have in common is that milk is tailor-made to support the young of the species. So, you know, hormones in our body and mammal mammalian bodies trigger the production of milk. So milk is a mixture of all types of amazing things, not just water, fat and protein, but them, you know, very importantly, but also things like immune cells, antibodies and all other types of bioactive molecules and depending on the time of day that it is depending on what you know the person with the mammary glands has been eating depending on the age of the baby it it will all determine you know what the what the makeup of the milk is at that particular time and the word mammary um, mama or mama it means breast mama means breast so there you go um and mammary glands you know, they are arranged in organs uh, such as, well, breasts in humans and other primates like chimpanzees, udders in um, ruminants like cows and goats and sheep, mm-hmm. um, and in other animals such as dogs and cats. They're arranged in something that I read is called a dug, a, a D-U-G. Yeah, oh. I've never heard of that before. Looking at what milk is made up of, starting with human milk, 
it's very it doesn't have a high fat content and i'm sure a lot of mothers and fathers out there have heard you know have read up on this when you when you um have a baby people are always saying it's not a high fat not a high fat content which means that babies have to drink uh, very frequently which means you're up all night humans have 3.8 percent fat 1.2 percent protein compare that to the milk of a blue whale which has 38 percent fat and 12 percent protein so apparently um, according to some researchers the blue whale milk has the consistency of loose runny cheese but that makes sense because they've got to feed underwater so absolutely yeah um, and their mammary glands, blue whales' mammary glands, each one of them is nearly five feet long. Wow. Yes, that's, that's a pretty long mammary gland. With these five-foot-long mammary glands and incredibly fat-heavy milk, um, that means that blue whales' calves are packing on the pounds and, they, and just during their suckling period, um, a blue whale calf will put on 17 thousand kilograms from the milk i mean they gotta grow big they gotta grow big that's a lot yeah. oh my goodness that's a very uh i guess fatty milk but not the fattest in the mammal kingdom that prize goes to the hooded seal so their fat can reach 61 percent sorry oh, wow. their milk can reach 61 percent fat um and that's because they only nurse their pups for four days on pack ice before returning to the sea for food. So so it's basically butter. It's basically butter, exactly. Or cream, yeah. Or heavy, heavy cream. Yeah. Um, so they need to, these seals need to pack on as much as they can in four days, which is their only lactation period, um, or they'll, they'll die on the ice. So they, they're, yeah, sucking butter through the teeth, so to speak. <laughs> Now, when it comes to the anatomy of mammary glands, things are quite different across um, mammals as well. Uh, not all mammals have nipples, like echidnas and platypuses, our monotreme friends. They don't have nipples at all. Their milk just drips out of their mammary glands onto their fur and then their young uh, lick it off. This is, I mean, it, I guess it works for them. It has for many millions of years. But interestingly, scientists have found an antibacterial agent that is present only in monotreme milk. And the reason that they suggest that this antibacterial agent has evolved in monotremes is that there might be a higher chance of microbial growth if you just, if you just sort of like letting the milk come out onto the fur. You don't have a nipple to you know, decrease your chance of, you know, microbes causing disease in your young and whatnot. It's interesting too that they both have, um, how should we say, unusual shaped mouths, um, platypuses and echidnas. So, yeah, yeah, it kind of, I guess they don't need to be able to suckle in the same way. Yeah, they they do them, don't they? Yeah, they can afford (laughs) to grow a bill or a beak. It's true, yeah. Um, but even with the placental mammals with nipples, it's a little bit different. For example, seals, sea lions and walruses, they all have retractable nipples, um, which likely cuts down on drag in the water and protects nipples from the cold. And we've also, there's a huge variation in the number of mammary glands and number of nipples out there. So um, obviously... We have two nipples, unless you're lucky enough to have a third nipple. 
Uh, cows have four, but the southern red-sided opossum... Do you want to have a guess how many nipples the southern red-sided opossum has? Eight. Uh, no, it's between 25 and 27. What? Wow. Yeah. It's an odd number. That's a lot of young to be suckling, isn't it? That's that is. That is possums. too much. Oh, oh, possum. <laughs> oh, oh, possum. Do they actually give birth to that many young, though? Or is it just, just they've got some spares? Well, they're marsupials, aren't they? So they could, I guess, maybe, because marsupials tend to be born very small. Yeah, so they're born very small. They have a very, very short gestation period mm. and then they make their way into the pouch and then you know with with something like an opossum it'll um make its way into the pouch latch onto a nipple and it'll stay sucking and growing for 60 days straight so um apparently in that time the nipple will stretch and grow with the animal and it'll grow to something like 35 times its original size so maybe there's more nipples um for like different stages of growth or maybe they're just really small so you can actually mm. fit 35 on your opossum person <laughs> anyway so there you have it there's massive variation in you know milk in in milk making mammary glands of the world but before i finish i have to tell you I have told a little bit of a white lie this whole time and i said that only mammals make milk when in fact, there is a species of jumping spider, Toxius magnus, um, it has been discovered to also feed their offspring with a milk-like substance. So I know what you're going to say, mama mia, mama mia. <laughs> Wasn't expecting that. And yeah, so I'm going to leave you on that truly bad mum joke. Yeah. Um, and we'll we'll delve into that story um, some other time. Thanks for keeping us abreast of the, the latest memory news, Claire. by the following process. First, we guess it. <laughs> Th then we... Com 
So don't laugh. That's really true. Then we compute the consequences of the guess to see what, if this is right, if this law that we guessed is right, we see what it would imply. And then we compare those computation results to nature. Or we say compare to experiment or experience, compare it directly with observation to see if it, if it works. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. In that simple statement is the key to science. It doesn't make a difference how beautiful your guess is. It doesn't make a difference how smart you are who made the guess or what his name is. If it disagrees with experiment, it's wrong. That's all there is to it. In the history of science, novel and innovative concepts occasionally arise from sudden left-field inspiration. Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. But I'd rather be remembered for my own small contributions to science. As a scientist, I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. I am a scientist! I think they're scientists. I bring scientists. You bring a rock star. Across Australia, on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to Lost in Science. Now, last week I was talking about research into various methods of intervention that can successfully prevent people from falling into conspiracy theories and similar ideas, and all of the methods that had a large effect on preventing people from conspiracy thinking appear to be before people are exposed to the ideas. And one of the methods that had a large effect was using what was termed an inoculation against pseudoscience, which is giving people the tools to spot things that are maybe presented as science but are not science. Science itself is a method of investigation, and in general, it doesn't come up with any truth it usually concludes with a probability that something works in a particular way we don't, we don't talk about scientific truth we do talk about you know the theory of gravity and things that you can demonstrate but science is always open to their being a possibly better solution to explain things than, than the one we accept. Now, there are a number of ways to use the scientific method, but they nearly always start with a question. And the first step then is you take your question and you review the available literature on a topic, which some people might call research, but I think that a critical review of literature is a better way to think about it with the emphasis on critical. I mean, we all know that research is just watching a bunch of YouTube videos. Surely. Look, you know, figuring out what people have already done is a good idea. If you come up with a question, you look and see if anyone's already answered that question. It makes a lot of sense to do that. But that in itself isn't really research and certainly not scientific research. You look at how other people have tried to answer a question, how good their answers might have been. If there there is a good answer for the question you have, don't have to reinvent the wheel or or repeat research that's already been completed. You've, You've got your answer there. If you are being critical, you can also look for possible ways that the answer could be improved. And this is what a lot of scientists are doing. They're trying to figure out a better answer for to explain a particular question that they've got. Now, if no good answer has been found to your question, you can develop a hypothesis about how this thing might work. And then once you've developed the hypothesis, that's not the end. You then have to test the hypothesis. And ultimately, that's the science part of it. You know, this is the people in lab coats and bubbling beakers and all that sort of stuff that people imagine is what most of science is. Designing experiments to test hypotheses is the basis of science. And many experiments will produce what we call a null result. In other words, they show that the hypothesis is not 
correct because the results of the experiment don't come back as predicted as as you know the hypothesis would suggest that something will happen if it doesn't happen then that hypothesis is wrong and this is a good thing there's no such thing as bad data in an experiment um i mean unless you write it down wrong or imp improperly recorded or something like that but basically in science proving things wrong is kind of one of the goals of science it's one way of knowing you know what isn't happening so we can figure out what is happening like practical sense though like if you've got a great idea and that's your hypothesis how many people do you think are excited when they find out that it's wrong having run lots of experiments myself i can tell you not many Right. <laughs> if you know you do want your hypothesis to be correct and you want your experiments to show that but finding out how things don't work as i said is is a useful thing to do it's just not very exciting mm. and it's also not something that people tend to publish very much and that's another step in the scientific process is when you do get a result you publish it and you let other people see what you found and they can also then poke holes in it as well there's an Austrian British philosopher of science called uh, Sir Karl Popper came up with the idea that one of the defining features of the scientific method was that things could be proven wrong often quite easily but it's very difficult to prove something a hundred percent right and this this is the basis of a lot of scientific thinking is that it's falsifiable you can find evidence that something's wrong a lot more easily than you can find evidence that it's right and this also is something that tends to come out in pseudoscience that absence of evidence for something or against it leaves a little tiny possibility that it might still be true and that and that in uh, pseudoscience that's exploited to a great degree where you can't prove that it's not working so therefore we can make money off the fact that people will think it is a lot of pseudoscience does sound like it might be scientific but it's often based on claims with little supporting evidence and you've probably seen the kind of advertising people and marketing people love to use words that sound sciencey like enzymes and amino acids and i think the current favorite sciencey sounding word is quantum which is used to describe all sorts of things most people don't really understand how quantum mechanics works so you can get away with saying things like you know quantum and it sounds cool but it it may be just sciencey sounding jargon and this is one of the one of the features of pseudoscience is that they will try and use science like terminology without the actual science to back it up as i said real science you can question quite rigorously and the process of peer review which i mentioned earlier is another feature of the scientific method that makes it such a useful tool if a hypothesis is set up and it's tested and you do an experiment and you draw a conclusion you publish your work in a peer-reviewed journal and there's really no one better to point out your mistakes than another scientist in the same field because it is a really competitive world the world of science and scientists love to poke holes in other people's theories and point out their mistakes and this is one of the reasons that real science does get published in peer-reviewed journals so it is subject to that level of scrutiny which is probably not what the average person will be able to, to bring to the table pseudoscientific claims on the other hand often fall apart if you start poking at them there's not really a lot of substance there. So if you start asking questions, this is probably the best thing to do. If you if you think there is a claim or a, an explanation that sounds too good to be true, start asking questions. And some of the questions, I've got three questions I think that are useful to start asking about any kind of scientific claim. If, you, if you're not sure if it's scientific or if it's 
possibly pseudoscientific, then these are the kind of questions you should start asking. The first question you need to ask about these kind of claims is what is the source? Who is actually making the claim that you are being presented with? What are their credentials? Are they a scientist? Have they published in this area before? Is it an article in a peer-reviewed journal or is it a report based on a journal article being published in a newspaper or in a magazine or something like that? Ultimately, where did this information that they're presenting actually come from and what is it based on? That's a really good question to ask. That obviously is something that um, a lot of pseudoscientists have a problem with that kind of notion. And there is some, you know, there is a sort of the uh, the logical fallacy of argument from authority as well, saying this person is you know, basically judging a claim by how important this person is making it. But I guess what I'm trying to say is there's sort of an anti-intellectual bent that you get with a lot of pseudoscience and you see it particularly in things like um i don't know climate denial where it's like you can't trust the experts you can't trust the climate scientists because they're all in on it they're all um you know colluding so you can only trust claims made by people who aren't experts and we saw that again with um vaccines and virology and that sort of stuff saying the virologists are all got it wrong you can only trust someone who doesn't know anything about viruses because they're the only ones going to tell you the truth the the simple answer to that is scientists are just people and they really are competitive and as i said one of the best ways to test something is to throw it out to a room full of people and see how many different opinions you get and the fact that multiple scientists will agree on something is actually more surprising it's a pretty cutthroat world really the science world i think the other thing you know as you said this is you don't want to be you don't want to appeal to authority it's not just that someone is an expert why are they an expert look at what have they published or what have they worked on all of those things their expertise is built on work that they've actually done not just a job title or something like that if you get to that point you can actually look at what is the evidence in there people can access these journal or a lot of journal articles um, certainly a lot more of them are becoming available and you can read abstracts of them and, and things like that have a look at the actual evidence of a claim one of the things that pseudoscience often does is relies on testimonials from people you know it's x number of people say that this really worked for them that's not science that's just marketing basically scientific claims don't need to be popular they just need to be demonstrable you just need to be able to show that something is true and that's the kind of evidence you need to look for. So you're looking for that demonstrable evidence that you can possibly even check for yourself in some cases. And I think the third big question to ask, and this is this is one that is also often leveled at scientists, is is there money involved? Is someone trying to sell you something? Most scientists don't sell products to people. They're too busy doing science. They've got a job, their job is to do science. If you know, if there's a price tag attached to a claim, if you've got to subscribe to something or pay money or whatever it is, that makes it very suspicious. Probably not gonna be a science claim, it's gonna be a product that someone is trying to sell you. And that's not to say that real scientific findings aren't worth money because obviously new understanding of science leads to new technology which needs new products, but they're not really that closely related. There's a whole lot of steps in getting a you know scientific finding to actually getting a product on the market and it's got very little to do with the scientists by the end of that stage as well. I think there's there's a whole lot of questions you can start asking but I think the important thing is to ask questions about 
you know, about claims made, especially if they sound sciencey. If you're not confident enough to ask these questions yourself, find someone who is. There's plenty of scientists in the world. There's plenty of science teachers. There's lots of information around about science. You can read up on most subjects and get a reasonable idea of how things work. If something does sound like it's going against what we accept, then you start asking these questions. You're probably not going to get simple answers to complicated questions, but if you start asking questions, that's a good place to begin. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.